0: Welcome to Boundaries of Expression, a podcast from Article 19, exploring the limits and challenges to freedom of expression. I'm Joe Glanville. This is the second in a series of podcasts looking at reproductive rights and freedom of expression, following the reversal of Roe v. Wade in the United States in June, ending the federal right to an abortion. It's a significant turnaround when the global trend over the past 20 years has been towards greater access to abortion. So, does this mark a social and cultural shift beyond the US too? Today, we're talking to activists from around the world, looking at the fight to protect women's rights globally and the impact for freedom of expression and access to information. Beni Alasiorua is Executive Director of Women on Web, a pioneering international website that has helped 100,000 women and responded to 1 million requests. Lara Dimitrievich, is founder of the Women's Rights Foundation in Malta, the only country in the EU with a total ban on abortion. She's also a lawyer. Judy Tang is head of gender and sexuality at Article 19, an organisation that defends freedom of expression around the world. It looks as if we're living in a moment of backlash against a fundamental human right after what appeared to be decades of liberalisation. And Laura, I wanted to ask you first, Poland introduced a near-total ban on abortion in 2020. The US reversed the constitutional right to abortion this summer. Where do you see the trend coming from and, and where do you see its influence?
1: Well, I mean, you know, in a way, it's, it's no surprise to see such a, a trend, you know, that this, this backlash and a reversal of and removal of, of rights um, that women have fought for, for so long. For us, at least in the area of violence against women, we have been noticing this happening through to the last, I would say, past seven years or so, starting off with Agenda Europe. So you had some, let's say, far right ideology on the rise coming from Eastern Europe, pushing its way through evangelical in America. And, you know, I think we could see this as having a ripple effect to a certain extent, even now with certain leaders and certain political movements that are on the rise, let's take Orban in Hungary, Erdogan in Turkey. So this, in a way, comes as no surprise to me, particularly coming from this area. Having said that, you tend to see such a backlash. I mean, the first things that are removed are actually women's rights, followed by then, you know, LGBTIQ rights. So in a way, you can see this But this is all set in motion.
0: And Veni, what do you think the wider impact of the reversal of Roe v. Wade will be around the world? And and do you see repercussions already?
2: Absolutely. Well, the overturn of Roe v. Wade is already emboldening and fueling anti-abortion agenda, anti-rights agenda and groups around the world. And what it's doing is setting a really damaging example for governments debating abortion rights, So, for example, Hungary, Slovakia, Turkey, that were already mentioned, and really questioning if abortion rights are human rights at all. It is kind of like a stark reminder that reversal of basic rights, like access to abortion, can sometimes just be one election away. And uh, showing that sexual reproductive rights are fragile and they are under attack. And it's setting a precedent that... Access to abortion can be reevaluated even after it's been constitutionally protected in the U.S. for nearly 50 years. And what we're seeing and hearing from groups on the ground, for example, in Bangladesh, shortly after the decision, there were already local groups leaning to the decision and expre- when they were expressing opposition to sexual reproductive services and rights. Same in Philippines. The groups are fearing that the, the fragile gains that have been made recently are going to be lost. Their voices won't be heard. And uh, I think even in Western Europe, like anti-abortion agenda hasn't really been mainstream or been in the mainstream. But I, I can only imagine how the reversal of Roe v. is going to give these groups that's been usually working in the fringes a loud voice.
0: And it is certainly a very shocking reminder that we can't take our human rights for granted. And I think certainly. Many women felt that this was the status quo. This was the state of things, the right to abortion. And Judy, I wonder how far you think the U.S. has influenced the shift. I mean, it's not, of course,
3: the only country to restrict abortion. Absolutely. I think the United States has a big role to play, but it's not the only country. And like Laura said, this is not a new occurrence. This is obviously Roe versus Wade and the reversal of that has been cataclysmic but it's important to give equal attention to the years preceding this decision and the influence of the United States over reproductive and sexual health rights globally. Uh, For example, abortion has long been at the center of debate over the provision of US foreign aid. When Trump came into power, he instituted a global gag policy known as the Mexico City Rule, and that as a condition of receiving foreign aid from the United States, that you cannot perform or actively promote abortion as a method of family planning. Now, when Biden came into power, he revoked that. But this just proves that abortion has long been at the center of debate in the United States for how we approach other countries and and other people around the world. And this is not to say that with another change in leadership that it can be reinstated. And so that's just an example of how abortion has been used um, politically in the United States and its impact globally before this reversal of Roe versus Wade. even though this has a huge impact on sexual health and reproductive rights and immediate life or death situations in the United States, I think that we also need to look at the rhetoric that is around this and that what this has really been globally is a reinforcement of a traditional values argument about contesting universal human rights. And traditional values has always been long used to persecute people who don't conform to the status quo or the norm. And, you know, we see this in Russia where they have um, used traditional values arguments to uh, put into place anti-LGBT uh, laws such as not having any propaganda about LGBT rights to protect children. And so this reversal of Roe versus Wade it's definitely reinforcing that position. That is really, really damaging. So the right
0: to abortion, the right to an abortion is also about the right to information because that's essential for being able to make decisions about our choices. And Venny and Lara, you both run websites and organizations that provide invaluable information and assistance, as well as advocacy. And Venny, your website offers information in multiple languages in 200 countries across all continents. And I wonder what kind of tactics have you faced from countries that want to restrict access to that information?
2: I think the most common tactic has been that governments have censored our websites. So currently our websites are censored in Brazil, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Korea, South Korea, Turkey, Spain, and more recently in Malta as well. It's extremely damaging because access to information is critical for people to ensure healthy sexuality access accurate information on sexual reproductive health, their rights, their services that are available. And oftentimes what we've been doing, we're doing the job that the governments are meant to be doing. Governments are failing to provide this information, so our website is there as an alternative. So I think that's the most sort of conventional tactic we've been facing. But I think another more complex thing that has sort of started to come to our attention in the last couple of years is that more and more people are going online, seeking information and trying to access services. But internet itself is becoming more and more regulated, more and more closed. And there's a lot of other forces like big technology corporations, deciding what is visible and what remains online. Corporations that are also enabling disinformation. And in that way, uh, limiting people's access to information, which is a human right just like access to abortions as well.
0: And Laura, you set up your foundation nearly 10 years ago, and with the total ban on abortion in Malta, it's been a taboo subject. And I wonder how far do you think women are frightened of even seeking out information?
1: I have to admit that even myself on a personal level, it was, you know, the taboo and the stigma surrounding the issues related to abortion care have been so ingrained and instilled within us. Uh, that for me, um, again, even on an activist level and on a personal level, it was difficult to talk about it. However, I would say that since we started campaigning, which would be since twenty eighteen onwards, today um, things have shifted. So it's become more normalised to discuss abortion. In fact, it's something that's you know going back to social media that is constantly being discussed on social media. And yes, uh, as part of the foundation, we have set up an online helpline that can be accessed also through through a telephone as well. To provide this information, we felt that, you know, this, for us, I think this was the breaking point, you know, the fact that we had could provide this information to women that want to access abortion care, you know, and linking them to women on web and and other international organizations um, has been key and has been crucial. Of course, having said that, it doesn't mean that we have not tried to be gagged. So they have tried to put down the website. We have also been reported to the police in order for us to be investigated and prosecuted for providing this information. But, you know, as you said, I mean, the right to information is a fundamental human right. So I think so far, at least, we have not been touched on, on this matter.
0: It's very interesting you say when you talk about the impact that the taboo had on you as well. So how did you find the courage to expose yourself in that way to create this foundation? Um,
1: <laughs> it was not easy, but I mean, I, I'm sure that we all, all here can, can agree, you know, I mean, we are women and we have rights. And for me, that is, it, it's, you know, it's, it's a very, very important value. And it's something that I cherish to heart. And I, you know, kind of felt that somebody has to grab the bull by its horns. And I, you know, I had a lot of support on a personal level from my, my better half and my children to women and themselves, even on social forums, you know, closed social platforms. Kind of felt that listen you know we really need to do something so i said okay let's do it let's go for it and i mean i'm, I'm a lawyer as well so it's kind of you know this is instilled with me human rights are very something that i take to heart and, and i'm very passionate about so yeah it was not easy it was not easy and i think also in a way sort of seeing a little bit what happened in america you know with the backlash um and also in ireland you know a few years back it was not an easy decision but I'm glad we've done it. And, you know, now we're really on the road to, you know, potential change,
0: at least from a complete to ban in more Well, I'd be very interested to talk about that a little more later. Judy, how far do you think disinformation, not just blocking information, but disinformation, plays a role in disrupting access to information?
3: Disinformation is at the very core of the tactics used by the far right, the anti-choice movement by the anti-LGBT movement, it's, at least through my experience, working in freedom of expression and access to information, one of the main modes of how they really consolidate their power. And and the anti-choice movement knows that access to information is a critical component towards promoting gender equality, giving people agency in their lives. And so the minute that you strip someone of that, then that's where, in that confusion, in in the fear and in the chaos, you're able to consolidate your power. And going back to what I was speaking about, traditional values, this argument that um, our local culture and our local practices does not believe in human rights, um, that it actually believes in um, not promoting gender equality. It believes in... um, propagating stigma about women and LGBT people, it's premised off disinformation. So it's about scapegoating, it's about stigmatization. And you, we see this with media manipulation. Everywhere where we're seeing these large backslides on gender equality and LGBT rights and the backslides in sexual health and reproductive rights is a whole media atmosphere of manipulation and confusion. And so on top of censorship, You also have a tactical move by the far right, by people who are against human rights, ensuring that there is a flurry of misinformation in the information ecosystem. So people can't tell opinion from fact. And and that does instill fear and disempowers people from making the right choices about their lives. So you think that's a clear tactic? Absolutely. 100%. It's Disinformation is where you're able to stoke bigotry, misogyny, by putting forward information that goes against science and confusing people about it and ensuring that long held modes of oppression are reinforced. And so that's why I wanted to make clear that from a freedom of expression, access to information vantage point, which is where I work, leading the gender and sexuality program is that disinformation is, is it. It is where the, the challenges and this traditional values argument is a really, really tough, tough angle to fight when they're talking about religion and values. I mean, they call it traditional values. What a euphemism. But it has nothing to do about values. It has everything to do about consolidating power and letting the status quo remain.
0: So Fanny and Laura, I imagine that your websites as being... Places that women can come for information are very important in challenging disinformation. Benny, perhaps I can come to you first.
2: Absolutely, I'm going a little bit also to what Judy was saying when I start from from the anti-choice movement and how they've they realised that they can't stop abortions by shutting down clinics, for example. So now they're going after these. Websites and options and alternatives and workarounds that women and pregnant people are finding to access the abortion pill, and that's where they find websites like ours and try to restrict information. Every once in a while, we always receive requests from people who have first encountered inaccurate information uh, before they find us and before they can request uh, service through us. And in that case, they've already there's been a delay uh, to access care and. And in some cases, people don't find us, and then they've been deterred from accessing care at all. And we definitely see that our role, especially in the context of US as well, we don't. Our service is not open in the US, but we see that our role is to continue producing and disseminating accurate, timely, just straightforward information around abortions, and uh, doing our part that good quality information is out there. But it's really difficult, even just. Putting out medically accurate information at the moment on social media platforms is it's highly likely that it's going to get blocked. And we're getting into a point where we're trying to figure out how can we send our message and use the words and sentences that are acceptable and on these platforms. But we're going to a point where we're asking ourselves, are we diluting our message too much? Are we actually perpetuating the stigma because we're not able to use certain words? It makes the fight against this information really hard when we are stopped from just producing medically accurate information, sort of non-event information about uh, abortions that everybody should be having access to when they're thinking about their options.
0: And can you just explain why you're not open in the US? Women and Web
2: service is open currently in almost 200 countries. So it's never really been our strategy, and we've been focused on serving these 200 other countries. And what we do, we, if we get requests from the US, we then refer them to some trusted providers and resources that we know of. And, and we see that our role is to just continue referring them to those providers.
0: But people in the US do come to you for information, don't they? Very large numbers.
2: Absolutely. And every time there's been a big event, whether it was the Texas ban, or when the the decision leaked in May and then later on in June when the decision was final, we've always seen a huge uptick in in traffic coming from the U.S. And uh, despite we are open in 200 different countries, U.S. has always been where most of the traffic to our website is coming from. Our responsibility comes that we want to continue serving as accurate and straightforward information as possible for people to make good informed decisions about their their lives, their futures, their, their bodies and their well-being.
0: Laurie, you mentioned earlier that you launched your campaign in 2018 and I wonder how you see that influence playing out in Malta.
1: It was actually something that when you come from a situation of a total ban and a total taboo, launching something on such a and then we call it a grand scheme, which anyway, at the end of the day, is a basic fundamental right, kind of did send tremors. So it does create huge, huge waves. And whilst thinking that potentially we would have had a bigger backlash than perhaps what other countries are you know, facing at the moment, um, I'm not saying we didn't, we, we don't, and we still receive a lot of hate messages and threats and even personal threats that I have received. Uh, but I think it's something that has, you know potentially the insularity um of the country in itself has now created a space of a discussion. I mean this also in a way came hand in hand and, and or rather, you know, following a situation where Malta was one of the first countries to introduce marriage equality. So kind of you always have this dichotomy of how can you know be so much at the forefront on LGBTI rights, but then when it comes to women's issues and accessing abortion care, sort of that was not allowed. It has been successful. I can say that it has been successful in the last five years. Since we have been up and running and campaigning, there has been a shift and the polls are indicating that there is a shift. Currently, what we know is particularly after the Andrea Prudente case that we've had last June, uh, we know that the government is in the process of revisiting the law from a total ban situation.
0: Just to explain, Andrea Prudente is the, the American tourist who was denied an abortion in Malta this summer after she had a partial miscarriage and she she had to get to Spain in or, in order to have the the abortion.
1: We still don't know. I mean I'm assuming it will still be a quite restrictive
0: shift. However, there is
1: discussion of addressing the total ban and removing more to from this red list that we have been
0: there forever basically. And I just want to come back to that in a moment. Benny, advocacy and research are both extremely important to the work that you do at Women on Web and you referred earlier to the number of countries that you're blocked in and you're challenging the censorship in some of these cases. And I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you're doing. In, in South Korea,
2: Turkey and Spain, we've been challenging the censorship of our website in the, in the courts. And basically our counter argument has always been against blocking the whole website is that the website in itself It's more than just a place where people can request uh, safe abortion services. It's a website available in 25 different languages providing information around abortions. And access to information is a human right. By blocking the whole website, you are denying people's basic human rights and possibility of impart and receive and disseminate information. And it's been really important for us when we decided to challenge these censorship practice is that we are also tired of trying to circumvent the censorship all the time. What we've been doing in the past years, we've set up this mirroring website every time we get blocked and we've ended up having 10 to 11 websites on the internet. And it's just not sustainable. Instead of circumventing, we want to challenge this this censorship. Strategic litigation for us is not, uh, we don't go into these court cases thinking that we're necessarily going to win, but it's about raising awareness around the connections that access to information and sexual reproductive rights and digital rights have as well and how those
0: intersect with each other. Judy, where do you think campaigners should be focusing at, at this point? Do you think they should be focusing on legal reform in individual countries or targeting international bodies? Do you think there's a, a clear strategy, a, a clear path for a strategy at the moment?
3: That's a big question. And I think <laughs> the quick and easy answers that campaigners need to be addressing this issue from all avenues possible, because that's how the anti-choice, anti-LGBT rights, anti-gender equality movement is doing it. Like, it's multifaceted. It's not one mode. And so I would say the same for those of us on the other side working to advance gender equality and human rights and sexual reproductive rights. I know that's a very broad and, and vague response. but. I think that we need to really think in that manner. I work for Article 19. It's a freedom of expression, access to information organization. And so the vantage point in which we work in, in terms of our advocacy and our campaigning is certainly at the UN level. There's a huge battle going on at the UN. Again, over traditional values. I keep speaking about it because it is is the mode and it's the vehicle that we are constantly confronted with when we're trying to, increase civic space to even speak about these issues is that based on traditional values, we don't we don't want to table this. And so we've been doing this at the international level, at the regional level, we have regional offices and they're tackling this at regional human rights mechanisms as well. And I think an important, important place and space rather, to be pushing and pushing hard is about digital rights and the link of digital rights to sexual health and reproductive rights and gender equality. Um, As Veni has illustrated with Women on Web, it's become an increasingly important portal and space for women and people who don't conform to gender norms or people who can get pregnant to access the care and the information that they would otherwise not be able to receive based on the restrictions in their physical and geographical location. So we at Article 19 think it's of vital importance to push social media companies to look at their algorithms, how these machines are on their own having bias and uh, promoting disinformation and censoring and ensuring that the internet remains open. We're looking at online harassment and abuse and how it's infinitely targeted towards women and LGBT plus people and, and it's used as a mode of shutting people out of the internet who contests these large powers that are pushing forward misogyny and bigotry. And so, of course, we need to be addressing this across all facets. Um, and Article 19, we, we really emphasize the importance of ensuring that the internet remains open And that digital rights is seen as a clear link to gender equality and promoting sexual health and reproductive rights.
0: In South Carolina, which is targeting access to information
3: in its legislation, that is a clear focus for them, isn't it? Exactly. It's it's about ensuring that any medium of information distribution, so whether that's a pamphlet or whether that's a website or a blog or a podcast, that they, they limit our ability to speak about this. And the Internet just remains pivotal, So, especially in the United States, where now where it's up for question as to how states are going to regulate speech about this, because that's what they're going after next, is whether someone from New York can speak to someone in South Carolina about how to access safe abortion, where it's legal in New York. That, that's all up for question now. And a lot of that interplay and exchange is happening on the Internet. And so this is where a lot of the attention is focused, is ensuring that the internet, that there's increased censorship and removal of content online. Laura, you
0: mentioned the case of Andrea Prudente earlier, the American tourist who was denied an abortion in Malta, and you're representing her, aren't you? Yes, yes, I am. And she's suing the government? She's suing the state, let's make it clear.
1: Yeah. <laughs> she's suing the state of them. yes.
0: Okay, and the extraordinary thing is, isn't it, one of the extraordinary things is that this happened at the same moment that Roe v. Wade was overturned, didn't it?
1: It was a very, you know, coincidental to a certain extent that the, the whole Andrea case happened at the same time when we had the reversal of Roe v. Wade and we knew about the Roe v. Wade coming up and Andrea's case, uh, and, well, Jade really, Andrea's father had reached out to the organisation for support. Uh, I think it was literally bit, you know, about 10 days prior to that. So Andrea also being foreign, having reached out and wanting to speak out to the public, you know, going to the media, did actually you know, kind of garner a lot of attention. And then, you know, you had then that reversal, which really, in a way, showed and for me, highlights how abortion care and abortion rights and sexual reproductive health is a global issue, you know, because it, it really made the ripple effects were, you know, really like um, voluminous across the world. And kind of, you know, did join the situation of what the backlash and what the implications are, are of a reversal of Roe v. Wade when you come from a situation of having a total ban. You know, for us, it, it has always been a total ban. So we don't know what it is like to have anything different. But then for me, for you know, I think for all of us really um, locally, to see then you have something that women have fought so strongly about and have managed to obtain such a, a basic right to then just be taken away so quickly. And then obviously seeing the aftermath of all of that was heartbreaking. And I think, you know, Andrea's case, you know, really brought that to light. You know, this is what would happen. You know, women's lives are at stake.
0: And the government the, the in Malta then announced a review. So do you think that was directly connected to the outcry over Andrea's case? Or do you think that it was a much more long running period that comes from the advocacy that you'd started in 2018?
1: I think it's a combination of the two. However, obviously, Andrea's case and having garnered so much attention in the international media was not a positive thing on on the government. So I think in a way that expedited the process. That we were hoping to achieve anyhow in, in the coming years, rather in the coming months. But yeah, I think it was, in a way, a reaction to a bit of a shame that you know, the whole case put more time on.
0: And are you hopeful of reform, of significant reform?
1: Uh, well, significant reform, I wish I would say yes, uh, but I'm not. <laughs> uh, at least from the, the listen, you know, information we're gathering, is that we know that there is a reform potentially coming into. In by the end of autumn. However, how significant that would be, I don't think that it would be significant enough.
0: But let's say it's a start. Yes, well, it's it's encouraging to hear about it. Fanny and Judy, I've sort of finally wanted to ask you about the importance of changing public attitudes. And I think one of the very interesting things to have happened in Poland is that although it's introduced some of the most restrictive laws in Europe in 2020, there does seem to have been a shift in public attitude. So yeah,
2: absolutely, there's been a shift in public attitudes in Poland ever since the near-total ban was introduced. There was massive demonstrations happening around Poland, and that was really sort of starting to force people who had never at that point thought about having an abortion or thought about what their, even their opinion around abortion was, were sort of forced to start having this debate within themselves or with their family members, their communities, forming an opinion of what they what they think about it. And I was really inspired by talk by given by Marta Lempa, the, the leader of the Polish strike, who was saying that abortion for the first time is actually becoming a symbol of freedom and privacy in Poland. So despite, of course, these restrictions are extremely discouraging, but there's also these counter-revolutions happening on the side. And we see these restrictions coming in place but we also have examples of women and local groups and organizations still surviving and still continuing to organize themselves and making sure that there there is still access to abortion. So I think I'd like to end this on a positive note. I, I know it can be really discouraging, this, this current backlash that we're having against women's rights and abortions. But there is also reason for optimism. And U.S., of course, joined. Poland and Nicaragua and El Salvador as the countries who have recently restricted access to abortions, but there's another almost 60 countries that have taken opposite progressive steps to guarantee and expand access. So I'd like to think that very slowly we are, are willing to fight and we have the data and the research on our side as well. And, and the abortion pills are in the hands of women now, and they're not going to give those pills back, that power that they've, they've
0: been given. I think that's a very good place to finish on, a, on an optimistic note. So I'd like to thank all of you for taking the time today to discuss this really vital issue. And I also really want to wish you all the best for the incredibly important work you're doing. So thank you very much. You've been listening to Boundaries of Expression from Article 19, produced and presented by Joe Glanville, recorded and mixed at Bison Studios in London. If you'd like to find out more about Article 19's work defending freedom of expression, please visit article19.org.